Welcome, ladies, gentlemen, seafarers, mariners, and amphibians from beyond. You are listening to the Je Nicole pod series. The opinions presented in this series do not represent the official position of any government, organization, or entity. Welcome back to Je Nicole, everyone. Welcome to this special episode on the Russia-Ukraine war that is currently unfolding. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Rob Person, who is an Associate Professor of International Relations at the United States Military Academy at West Point, New York. Rob specializes in Russian and post-Soviet politics and is the Director of Curriculum for West Point's International Affairs Program. His research interests include regime support, mass mobilization, and Russian grand strategy in the 21st century. Welcome to the show, Rob, and thanks for joining us on Junicol. Thanks. I'm glad to be here with you guys. Now, obviously, everybody who is connected to any sort of technology is aware that something significant is happening in Russia and Ukraine. And Rob, our uh, podcast, we deal with all sorts of military security strategy issues, but we have a significant following of navalists. So this is kind of outside of our usual lane, but we're also really excited about that. So before we launch into what's happening currently in 2022, what if you could just situate our listeners back to when I guess it all started in recent memory in 2014 with what was termed the Ukrainian Revolution of Dignity, I guess it's most commonly known for the Russian annexation of Crimea. Would you be able to provide a bit of a brief overview for our listeners of what caused this, particularly with reference to Russian strategy? Sure, Lucy. Um, you know, it's it's interesting because I would actually take uh, the start of this broader conflict all the way back to 2004, actually. Um, and, and 2004 is is when we sort of see the first mass revolution in Ukraine. It's what's known as the Orange Revolution. Um, and it's basically this mass mobilization of Ukrainians in opposition to rigged presidential elections. Um, and in those elections, uh, both the outgoing incumbent um, and uh, Vladimir Putin and the Russians basically were conspiring to install um, you know, a, a, a pliant pro-Russian president, uh, Viktor Yanukovych, into power in Kyiv. Uh, the the vote, uh, the first round of vote was, you know, sort of massively fraudulent. Um, lots of, you know, lots of shenanigans going on there. And it, it was obvious to the Ukrainian people uh, that uh, that these results had been manipulated. Uh, and so that's what brings them out into the streets in protest. Uh, these protests build and build and build until finally uh, the incumbent, uh, you know, the the president agrees to rerun the elections. Um, and so they hold new elections. Uh, the pro-Western opposition candidate, um, Viktor Yushchenko, wins the election and brings, uh, brings into power this, um, you know, the, the Orange Coalition, this pro-Western, um, you know, government. And, you know, that's a really important moment in this story because I think it's the first time that Russia sort of contends with the possibility that they could lose Ukraine, that they could u- lose Ukraine from their orbit, their special sphere of interest, uh, which, as we now appreciate, is is a really serious red line for Putin. Um, and so that's kind of, the, I think, the moment that sets them on edge and sort of sets this in motion. Now, over the next 10 years, there's a lot of ups and downs to Ukrainian politics. And in fact, in 2010, that pro-Russian candidate from the Orange Revolution, uh, Viktor Yanukovych, actually wins the presidential election um, and he comes to power. And so I suspect Putin kind of sighs, you know, a, a breath of, uh, you know, a, a breathes a sigh of relief um, because he's finally gotten his guy in power in Kyiv. Uh, that said, Yanukovych continues to, I mean, he's, you know, caters to, to Russian interests. Um, he, he reassures Moscow 
that um, you know that Ukraine will extend the lease on the the basin uh, Sevastopol, the headquarters of the Black Sea Fleet in Crimea. Um, but he also pursues a little bit of a of a sort of center line, and continues negotiations with the European Union um, over this association agreement. And you know, basically, what an association agreement is, it's it's an early sort of stage of um, expanding trade relations, reducing trade barriers, but sort of bringing a country's laws and regulations sort of slowly in line with EU standards. And that's why this association agreement is often seen as the first step towards potential EU membership. Um, Again, if Ukraine were to eventually join the EU, uh, this would essentially pull it out of Russia's orbit. Uh, It would prevent uh, Ukraine from sort of joining Russia's um, free trade uh, economic Union, and that was something that was unacceptable to Putin. And so, starting in about 2013, he puts extraordinary pressure on Yanukovych um, in the final sort of stages of uh, Ukraine's negotiations with the EU. Putin puts extraordinary pressure on on Yanukovych to walk away from the deal. Um, you know, both sort of carrot and stick approach. I'm sure there were lots of implicit and explicit threats made. But also, you know, promises of financial assistance that Ukraine badly needed at the time. And so it is in late 2013 that Yanukovych sort of decides to abruptly withdraw from the EU negotiations and cast his lot with Russia uh, and Putin. And again, that act, that sort of moment of turning away from Europe is what sets off protests in Kiev and across the country, um, you know, protesting what Yanukovych has done. That builds and builds and builds into uh, the revolution of dignity, Euromaidan, um, as, uh, as we know. And eventually it, it becomes sort of so massive uh, and, and there are some violent episodes and Yanukovych flees Ukraine uh, in the dark of the night in February of 2014, um, and uh, and and this brings into into power um, a new, much more uh, anti-Russian, pro-Western government into into Kiev, and and that's essentially um, you know what gets us the uh, the Crimean invasion and the Donbas war. Uh, I think uh, most of the pretexts that Russia conjures up to explain its intervention in Crimea, this idea that, uh, that there's ethnic cleansing uh, being done against ethnic Russians, all of that is made up. All of that is falsified to justify the invasion. But Putin sees his opportunity to kind of settle that long-running issue of the status of Crimea, the status of the Black Sea uh, fleet's base in Sevastopol, and he goes in, seizes it uh, relatively easy, uh, and then you know continues onward with support in in Donbas. So so that's kind of the quick overview of how the active military portion of the conflict gets started in 2014. But again, sort of the politics of it go back at least a decade earlier. Yeah. So you touched on uh, the 2014 leading to the the war and the conflict in Donbas region. And there was lots of pro-Russian separatists, which you, and you already talked about how Russia took Russia took advantage of that to instigate, um, I guess, actual military action. But what was was there a concurrent political campaign? Was it a hybrid kind of campaign against Ukraine? Can you tell us a little bit about whether the initial pro-Russian separatists were impacted by the Ukrainian government, that relationship there? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's interesting because I think Crimea is often sort of held up as sort of the textbook case of a well-executed hybrid um, engagement. Uh, you know, they, they sort of quietly sneak the little green men into Crimea uh, under the pretext of, of regular troop movements. They, they carry out sort of the necessary uh, propaganda campaigns, um, sort of preparing the ground for public opinion, and they more or less pull it off uh, without a shot. Donbass uh, is, is a bit different, um, you know, because 
in in certainly in in terms of you know the military efforts, uh, it was not as successful and not as clean, but it kind of had similar origins. The uh, the thing that sort of touched off the the Donbas part of the conflict, arguably, was what I think was probably a mistake by the Ukrainian government. So that pro-Western government that that comes to power uh, after the Maidan revolution in Kiev very quickly uh, passes a, a language law in Ukraine. And that law declares Ukrainian to be the sole official state language of Ukraine. Um, prior to that, Russia had also been a recognized official language. Um, and so, you know, the reality of Ukrainian ethnic uh, and nationalist politics and language politics is is complex. Um, you know, most, uh, you know, residents of, of Ukraine, um, you know, speak or at least understand both languages. But, you know, language is, is a powerful uh, symbol of identity. And so when this new government, uh, which has a lot of Ukrainian nationalists sort of represented in it, when this new government imposes this new language law, uh, basically downgrading Russian, uh, that certainly does um, sort of touch off anxieties and concerns among Russian-speaking populations in eastern Ukraine. And so that, I think, that act then sets off protests in Donetsk, Luhansk, in these regions in, in the Donbass. And then that is the sort of insertion point that Russia uses to basically then get its hybrid strategy uh, into action. They, uh, they, they cultivate those protests. They support those protests. They then start filtering in their own um, sort of imported insurgents and, uh, and, and, you know, sort of build off of uh, what was going on there. And, and eventually, again, sort of it builds to the point of a, of a full-on separatist movement uh, that becomes militarized, um, you know, yes, with some of those internal elements from the Donbass, but again, with, with a large amount of external Russian assistance, involvement, weapons, um, advising, which which to this day Russia doesn't acknowledge uh, that involvement, um, but it's obviously been there since almost the beginning. Yeah, and I think I did read that one year, for example, in 2017, there was like up to 40,000 separatist troops in that uh, Donbass region. But there's also, I think it was 29 ceasefires with the longest only lasting about six weeks in that region in 2016. And this period from the 2016-2017 era up to 2020 was referred to as the frozen conflict phase. Now, in your view, why do you think the ceasefires were unsuccessful? Do you think it is framed as an existential thing um, within Putin or within Russia? Or how do you contextualize that? Sure. So I, I actually wouldn't describe it as a frozen conflict um, yeah. because there was nothing frozen about it. Uh, it was there. There was active fighting throughout that entire period. As you noted, you know, numerous ceasefire agreements uh, that that, you know, never held. And so there was always some degree of you know, low-level fighting all the way up to at certain points, you know, in, in 2015 especially, you know, very, um, you know, very heated uh, exchanges across the line of conflict. Um, and in a lot of respects, I think that's ultimately what, what Russia wanted. Um, they, they didn't want the conflict to freeze in place or to settle. I think they wanted the ability to turn up and, and turn down the heat to achieve their political goals. And the overarching political goal during that period, it's actually what I think the, the ultimate goal is, you know, today for, for Putin in Ukraine. But the overarching goal was to use that conflict to try to weaken and destabilize the government in Kyiv and perhaps destabilize it enough that it would fall um, sort of under its own weight or, or fall under popular protest and, and dissatisfaction with the 
uh, you know, the, the disorder and, and the economic um, disruption that, that the war would cause. So I contextualize, at least from, from Moscow's perspective, I contextualize the Donbass conflict over the last eight years as being, you know, an attempted form of regime change, sort of indirect regime change um, in, in Kyiv to, to try to, again, return Ukraine back to Russia's sphere of influence. You know, if you can topple uh, the government of, of Petro Poroshenko, who was the you know, previous president, or the, uh, the presidency of, of Volodymyr Zelensky, then you can just sort of tiptoe in, install your own you know, preferred pro-Russian government and sort of secure Ukraine's place in, in your orbit. That strategy obviously failed. Um, it was not successful for, for eight years. And I think that's part of the reason why now we see Russia re- resorting to, um, you know, much more drastic measures to achieve what I think is still the same political goal, which is to replace the Ukrainian government. Yeah, I, I like what you you said about the frozen conflict. Uh, in preparation for this podcast, I was reading up and I heard it referred to that as multiple times. But then on the other hand, I'm looking at the statistics, how many Ukrainian soldiers were dying over that period of time. And it just seemed incongruent. So that was very insightful. And so from that point on, Okay, uh, how did we get to where we are right now in 2022? You said just then that uh, Russia is using more drastic measures now. Uh, what has been the tipping point? How did we get here? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And I will admit that it's probably the question that I still struggle with the most. Um, and it's the question of timing. You know, why now? After uh, eight years of sort of this simmering conflict, why did Putin choose this moment to escalate to an all-out war and invasion? Um, and, And I think the difficulty with sort of putting our finger on a specific causal moment or a specific turning point is one of the reasons why we in the West misread him. Um. I think a lot of people uh, up until, you know, early this year, even into February, uh, still thought that this was basically coercive diplomacy, thought that he was mobilizing, sort of beating the war drums, uh, as he has done repeatedly in the past, in an effort to exact some sort of political concession from Ukraine, Um, guarantees of neutrality, take NATO membership off the table, what have you. So I think a lot of us thought that that was the game that he was still playing because we couldn't necessarily see any definitive thing that that seemed to, to drive this escalation right now. That said, you know, to to try to understand perhaps why, uh, at least generally, he has chosen to escalate, you know, we can look back to the last few years and recognize that the situation hasn't been static. So I already mentioned, you know, you've been failing for eight years to achieve uh, your your strategic political objectives in Ukraine. And so there's a certain point at which, you know, he, he may just have sort of gotten impatient with uh, with waiting and sort of a sense that if he didn't seize the opportunity now, perhaps it would be too late in the future. And, and so that sort of casts this conflict almost as a, as a preventive war. Uh, he decided that, uh, that the longer he waits, the closer Ukraine gets to the West, the, um, you know, the, the harder it will be to, to achieve um, political outcomes there. So that's part of the story. The other part of the story is that you know Ukraine has been making some significant changes and advances over the last eight years. You know they they have obviously received significant military assistance uh, and training from uh, the United States from other NATO countries, um, and so that has to be you know figuring into Putin's calculations. Uh, We have had ongoing training um, missions and and support missions and advising missions for the Ukrainian military. And over the last year, eight years, have, um, you know, have really uh, 
assisted the the Ukrainians in sort of modernizing their their military, not just in terms of you know equipment, but also structure, command and control, uh, logistics, all of the things that, as it turns out, really matter for a successful <laughs> military campaign. Yeah. Um, and so that that you know that has probably affected Putin's calculus. We've been holding joint military exercises with the Ukrainians uh, in the same time, um, and of course they've been uh, getting a lot of combat experience in in the Donbas. And so it it could be again that Putin sort of recognized that as Ukraine was drawing closer to the West and becoming much more capable, uh, that perhaps his window of opportunity was closing. And then the last thing that that I'll throw out there uh, as a possibility, it's it's you know largely speculation, but um, you know obviously we can't peer into into Putin's mind, which is probably a good thing. I'm sure most of what we would see would be pretty disturbing. <laughs> but you know he's getting older. He's been in power for 22 years now. And, you know, coming up in 2024, there's, there's, there's sort of this big question. His presidential term will expire. Nobody expects him to, to hand over power. But the question of sort of what form his leadership will take is an open question. And so some people have speculated that, you know, he may be thinking about his legacy and sort of solving the one big unfinished piece of business in his mind, um, you know, after after 22 years in power. So he has sort of restored the power of the Russian state, restored the Russian economy. Uh, and it's possible that settling this Ukrainian problem in his mind is sort of the last really big thing um, that that he wants to achieve. Um, and and you can get a sense of that for for how much, you know, in his writing, in his speaking, he really does seem to hold Ukraine as as, as sort of this central, fundamental national interest, but also personal interest with almost an, an, an emotional attachment to. So that all kind of explains the timing, but it's there's still something puzzling about, you know, what was it about February 22 uh, that, um, that really compelled him to, to escalate so drastically? Has it been a common theme throughout Putin's leadership of Ukraine having such a foregrounded position in his mind, both emotionally and politically? I think that the broad strategic interest has been a constant, and that interest is to establish and maintain a privileged and exclusive sphere of influence across the post-Soviet space. So I think that's always been there, and, and we can see evidence of that going all the way back to you know Putin's arrival uh, in, in the presidency back in 2000. But the centrality of Ukraine and the obsession with Ukraine, I think, has grown over time. Um, you know, you, you go back, and, and I actually uh, recently wrote an article uh, on this topic with, with Michael McFall, who's the former U.S. ambassador to Russia, uh, and we look at some of the old rhetoric from Putin surrounding NATO expansion and surrounding Ukraine's relationship with NATO. And if you go far back, far enough back into the early 2000s, he's actually on the record of saying, listen, that's a question between Ukraine and NATO. He says the same thing about the Baltics. That's their decision. That's their relationship. It's wow. not for us to... to um, you know, to, to get involved. So I think it's a situation where certainly Russia back then wouldn't have been happy about the idea, but they basically say that, you know, they're sovereign countries and they can have independent relations with whoever they want. That's obviously a far cry from what we hear today. Um, so, you know, today the rhetoric is, uh, is so emotional, so strident, and I think that that's been building over over the years. Again, I think the Orange Revolution in 2004 and 2005 is sort of part of what starts that transformation. Um, but it's also then, I think, a continued reaction to, uh, 
you know, to, to Russia continuing to sort of lose the, lose the battle for influence in Ukraine as they have for pretty much the last 20 years. And so it's sort of festered, it's grown. And on some level too, I think Putin's own sort of psychological isolation has to be sort of figured into the explanation as well. And this goes back to the the problem of, you know, well, why, why did it happen now? You know, you have to remember that he has spent the last two years under a really high degree of self-imposed isolation. Yeah. Um, word on the street is that he's a germaphobe and he has had very little contact, direct contact, even with his inner circle of advisors. You know, most of it has been via uh, teleconference, and when they do meet in person, you know, you've seen the, the pictures and, and the videos of him. Yeah, huge tables separated by, you know, vast distances. And so, you know, I, I think that he's sort of built somewhat of an information bubble around himself. Um, and, and so incomplete and, and sort of bad information is, is sort of what's coming into him. So I think that explains part of his miscalculation, but I also think it sort of explains how he's then sort of able to stew in his own sort of emotional dark places uh, as as he thinks about Ukraine. Um, So it's really been sort of extraordinary to to see. Um, And of course, when, when you are at the pinnacle of a highly centralized personalist dictatorship, uh, it turns out that people aren't so comfortable with telling you the truth yeah. and telling you bad news. And so even those advisors that, that you know, still do have his ear, I think more or less tell him what he wants to hear. And that also helps account for some of the, uh, I think, some of the miscalculations that we've seen in the early phases of this war. Yeah, definitely military, militarily as well. Uh, you would think he was expecting to be uh, more successful than what's currently the case at the tactical level. We touched on a part of this before, but there's been a, a myriad of inaccurate claims from the Russian side, including that the origins of Ukraine as a country, Ukraine being dominated by neo-Nazism, and ev- evoking that conspiracy theory about how uh, anti-Semitism was actually related to the Russian Christians. Uh, and they were the true victims of Nazi Germany. Is this standard ops within the Russian playbook of false information, uh, or is this something special? I think at this point, all of that is, uh, you know, entirely for domestic consumption in Russia. Uh, it it is. I, I would absolutely classify it as a a case of information warfare. And it's part of the information war that Putin has waged against the Russian people for uh, really sort of quite stridently for for the last 10 years or so. Um, and, and it's only sort of accelerated. You know, even dictators uh, need some degree of popular support and legitimacy to stay in power. Uh, and, you know, Putin doesn't need the Russian people to, to, to love him. First and foremost, he needs them to remain passive. He needs them to remain at home. Uh, and so, you know, completely controlling the information space has been a central element of both his domestic political control, but obviously now his, his uh, strategy of legitimizing Russia's involvement in Ukraine um, I shouldn't say involvement. Let's let's call it for what it is. It's a brutal uh, invasion. Uh, it, it's a war, and so uh, you know the crackdown on uh, opposition, on dissent, the complete neutering of any independent media, um, and the uh, propaganda oriented towards uh, all of those themes that that you discussed, Um, you know, these claims of genocide against Russians, uh, against, you know, neo-Nazis running Ukraine, you know, American-led conspiracies, all of these things are essentially intended to hide the truth from 
ordinary Russians and to to try to sort of you know justify the invasion you know with the the Kremlin's sort of preferred false narrative. Um, so it's it's extraordinary, uh, but I think one of the silver linings or the good news stories, uh, at least that I see in the last four weeks of the war, is that the information warfare campaign against the outside world, the attempts to spread disinformation, lies, sow doubt, sow division, has utterly failed. Yeah, Ukra- uh, Ukraine has clearly been winning the international information campaign and Russia's usual tactics uh, that have proven successful going back to 2014 um, have have ultimately failed, and and so that has been reassuring, but um, but obviously you know that's that's only a fraction of the battle. Yeah, so that brings us to Zelensky, actor, comedian, politician. What do you think are some of the key reasons for his uh, political prowess? I, that's that's a great uh, that's a great question, and he really has risen. To the occasion, there's there's no doubt about it, um, and and I think he's been most effective, at least you know from from our perspective sitting here uh, in the outside world, um, he's been most effective with uh, the public relations strategy, mm-hmm. and you know that has included his his direct personal emotional appeal appeals to the people of Ukraine. You know, when when he said early on in the war uh, that, listen, I'm not I'm not leaving Kiev. I'm not leaving Ukraine. I'm not leaving my people. I will fight to the death if need be. That's obviously a, a powerful rallying cry. At the same time, he's been issuing these extraordinary, powerful emotional appeals to uh, you know, to the legislatures of of the free world, he's appeared before uh, you know the British House of Commons. Um, he's he's uh, you know appeared before the United States Congress, um, you know the, the the German Parliament and and others to uh, plead Ukraine's case and to make the case that Ukraine needs all of the support. That they can get, and and I think that's been effective. I think we've seen, you know, a direct response to those appeals shortly thereafter, as countries have stepped up with additional assistance. So that obviously has uh, has has helped in his abilities as a communicator. Drawing back on that that background in in acting, certainly have have shown through throughout all of this. That said, you know, again, he also has. Uh, a pretty extraordinary challenge ahead of him because you know he still has to govern uh, a state that is uh, in you know is is fighting an active war against a massive adversary. Uh, you know, state services, state capacity, infrastructure uh, is being devastated by by Russia's invasion. So obviously, there's there's the nuts and bolts of governing that still has to happen it's always difficult i think to govern in ukraine even more so during a war um but uh but i think that's sort of the long-term challenge that you know even charisma uh and and emotion can't necessarily solve um, and so you know that we, we can't lose sight of that as well you know i agree and conflict aside which i can only imagine is devastating for the people on the ground the daily grind of not being able to live now, do you think the peace talks will be successful? And I know this is kind of a loaded question because in a recent article you stated that providing off-ramps to Putin to allow him to save face and withdraw is naive and wishful thinking. Would you be able to explain your position on that for our listeners, please? Sure. So, you know, that insight, that prediction that, that we're nowhere near settling this diplomatically um, sort of, I, I draw from from a bit of international relations theory that basically conceives of war as 
just an ongoing bargaining process. It's, it's sort of like the old Clausewitz, you know, war is the continuation of politics by other means. Um, and, you know, in a, in a bargaining process, you know, two sides uh, essentially are making offers and counteroffers. They're exchanging information until they sort of zero in on a mutual set of expectations and ultimately sort of an agreement of you know how how to divide whatever they're negotiating over one of the problems is that this conflict as both sides have framed it uh is is sort of over indivisible goods you know both sides are are basically sort of treating this as all or nothing with maximalist goals said russia wants complete regime change in ukraine um, and basically a, a complete elimination of Ukrainian sovereignty. It's a pretty extreme objective. On the other hand, you know, Ukraine is trying to survive. Uh, and, and that is sort of an all or nothing affair. This is an existential threat uh, for Ukraine. And so it's, it's hard to, div- you know, it's hard to divide survival 70-30 or sovereignty, you know, 80-20 or, 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 50-50. And so that makes it harder for them to even conceive of some sort of overlapping settlement that both sides could live with. The other reason the conflict isn't ripe for settlement right now is that both sides actually believe that they can win. You know, if one side, you know, if, if Ukraine thought that uh, that it had no chance of winning this war, you would negotiate, you know, you, and you would settle right away and avoid all of the destructive cost of war. Um, but, you know, they both think that they can still sort of win this thing and they will continue to sort of believe that, you know, un- until sort of facts on the ground prove otherwise. And so this is where going back to that sort of bargaining model, sort of conflict, it's of the combat itself reveals new and important information. You know, every time they fight a battle, every time they have an engagement, they learn things about the other side's uh, capabilities and the other side's resolve. And they actually learn information about their own capabilities and resolve too. Um, and so as that information gets revealed, you know, they may start to sort of converge on an expectation about what the future of combat would hold. You know, perhaps it, it becomes apparent at some point that, you know, one side, if we keep fighting, one side will keep winning time and time and time again. So they may be willing to settle. Or they may recognize that, you know, we can keep fighting until the end of time and it's just locked in such a stalemate that, um, you know, that they're, they may be willing to sort of alter those war objectives and find something that they can divide. It seems clear to me just looking at what's happened in the last four weeks that neither side has reached that point. Um, and, you know, as the conflict seems to enter some degree of stalemate now, uh, the, the battle on the ground, I suspect, will be in that state for a long time. Um, and, you know, they'll, they'll continue fighting, but without uh, any significant sort of movement in favor of one side or the other. So how do you think allies, supporters of Ukraine can best help them? What do you think? What do you think have been the most effective uh, methods of supporting Ukraine so far, and what should happen? Yeah. So obviously, I think the uh, really unprecedented sanctions regime that has been imposed against Russia has been uh, extraordinary. Um, it has been quite effective so far in doing serious damage to the Russian economy. The most powerful tool that we have used uh, has been sanctioning of the central bank of Russia, essentially freezing its access to three to four hundred billion dollars worth of reserves that are held abroad. You know, this was supposed to be Putin's war chest. This is what he was counting on to 
fund the war and to whether, you know, whatever sanctions did, uh, you know, did, did get slapped on Russia. Um, I don't think he was counting on this. Uh, and it has really constrained Russia's ability to maintain um, stable, uh, stable prices, uh, a stable ruble exchange rate. And, and we're starting to see uh, some serious economic effects in Russia as a result. Obviously, there are other sanctions, um, you know, that we've put in place. You know, we've sanctioned uh, some of the leading Russian banks, state-owned banks, we put lots of personal sanctions on oligarchs and uh, and those in Putin's inner circle. So, you know, they've been effective, but there are limitations and there are things that, that we can do to expand the sanctions if we're really serious about imposing maximum economic pain on Russia. Um, expanding the list of sanctioned banks uh, to a much larger uh, group of banks, you know, would we would be one step. Um, imposing what are known as secondary sanctions would be another. So, in the current regime, uh, the United States, at least, has primary sanctions on certain Russian banks that forbids any U.S. person or U.S. entity from dealing with those banks. If we impose secondary sanctions. We go a step further and we prohibit any bank that does business with the United States from dealing with those sanctioned Russian banks. So any foreign bank, even if they're not under direct U.S. jurisdiction, would face a stiff penalty and even exclusion from the American financial system if they were to do business with the sanctioned Russian banks. So that is a pretty significant escalation that would essentially yeah that that would essentially uh cut russia off because obviously being having access to american and european and 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 global western financial institutions is uh is a crucial interest for for all of these banks and 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 companies so that would be a, a big escalation and then of course you know the the final one is uh cutting off russian energy sales and that has been the step that uh, is the most difficult politically and economically, I think, for our European allies because of their dependence on Russian gas, especially. Um, and so, you know, uh, until uh, we are collectively willing to take that step and pay the price for it, and yes, there there will be a price. You know, we're we're feeling it at the gas pump. We're seeing it in rising prices. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and general inflation. But until we're willing to, to pay that price, that mechanism continues to allow money to flow into, into Russia. So that's sort of the economic front. Obviously, on the military front, there are things that can be done, but everything comes with sort of risks and potential drawbacks. We certainly can increase military aid to Ukraine, um, provide additional weaponry to help them defend themselves, anti-tank, anti-aircraft, anti-missile systems, uh, drones all come to mind. And so I think there's room to increase that support. Some of the other more significant uh, areas obviously get a little bit more dicey. We've heard a lot about imposing a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Uh, one, you know, Zelensky's emotional appeals to parliaments around the world uh, have have called for such a no-fly zone. Unfortunately, uh, certainly from his perspective, the reality is that that is a step that I think most Western policymakers see as a, a risky escalation. Because ultimately, no-fly zones have to be enforced with, you know, NATO aircraft, and that would almost certainly introduce the possibility of, you know, direct combat between NATO and Russian forces, uh, and and that's essentially war, and that's what I think they hope to avoid at all costs. So we're sort of constrained militarily in in some of those escalatory measures. Um, but at the same time, I think more aid, more assistance, and certainly more humanitarian aid 
um, to you know the refugees leaving Ukraine, but also to to try to assist uh, assist with um, the humanitarian crisis within Ukraine is is another area that deserves additional support. Yeah, definitely, it's hugely complex, and I think it is you know can very much noteworthy how severe the sanctions have been, and I was surprised how quickly the nations are corralled to introduce them. It's yeah, it's definitely something for the history books. Well, thank you very much for that whirlwind tour through the conflict, the lead up to it. I know I definitely have learned a lot and I'm sure the rest of our listeners have as well. We now move on to the final proceeding in this episode and that's the Sailors 3, three questions we ask every single guest. And the first question, Rob, is your favourite or most remarkable in-service military platform in the world? What is your answer? And please tell us why. So every year at West Point, there's a week called Branch Week. And this is when all of the branches of the United States Army come in. And it's kind of like a job fair for the cadets. The cadets get to wander around, talk to you know people from the infantry, from armor, from artillery branch, um, from military intelligence, and kind of learn about sort of their career options in the army. But the cool thing is that uh, the branches that have fun toys bring them and put them on display. (laughs) And so a few years ago, obviously, uh, it's hard to argue with aviation branch as having some of the coolest toys. And a few years ago, they brought in um, the MH-47 Chinook helicopter, uh, which is the version of the Chinook that's used uh, by special forces. And I I got to watch it. um, I I, I got to watch it sort of come down as they landed it on West Point's historic plane. And I mean, it is a sight to see. It is this massive beast it's painted jet black. It's got this big boom sticking out the front for, for in-flight refueling. It's got like a bajillion guns sort of sticking out of it. And it's just this sort of awesome sight to see this thing sort of hovering down. And, and I have to assume that, um, you know, if you're ever sort of on the receiving end of this beast, um, and the forces that occupy it in their special missions, it, it's got to look something like the angel of death coming down upon you. Um, and so it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, really quite a sight to see. And, and so that, that's, that's what I would sort of give as, as my favorite military platform, uh, at yeah. least at the moment. It's like a death bird coming down. That would be terrifying. <laughs> yeah. A really big one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so our second question is, from your perspective, the most interesting emerging technology that can be at any stage of development, so you can go full Star Trek if you want to. What's your answer? So uh, I think that uh, quantum computing is really where where the future lies and has extraordinary implications for the future of warfare, national security, economics, everything. Um, and you know, I, 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 I'm a political scientist and so I don't really understand it, but I know what smart people have told me, uh, which is that, you know, quantum computing basically has the ability to, uh, revolutionize, you know, problem solving, um, you know, calculations, predictive, uh, calculations, uh, and essentially processing you know, massive, massive amounts of data far beyond what supercomputers can do. And this could have extraordinary implications for, you know, how we fight wars, how we analyze information, intelligence, make predictions, um, consider scenarios. One, One good contact of mine who's sort of very actively involved in this space, you know, has told me that, you know, whichever country sort of wins the super uh the the quantum computing race uh will own the 21st century um and so i i i think that's something that we obviously need to keep our eyes on and you know we need to be actively involved in in making sure that 
you know, we and our allies um, are on the leading edge of that uh, to ensure our interests. Yeah, the speed in particular, isn't it? The right information, and that's where it comes into the analysis piece as well, mm-hmm. not just the flow of information. And the last question is a multiple choice question. So you can either do a, uh, in our wildcard, you can do a prediction for the future of military operations and technologies. You can recommend a book for all emerging leaders, or you can provide a tip for emerging leaders. So prediction, book, or tip, what will you choose? So I'm going to go with tip. Um, you know, I'm, I'm an educator and, uh, and so I think that one, you know, sort of hits close to home. One of the things that I tell my cadets as they get close to graduation is that there's a particular set of analytical skills that we've been trying to cultivate at West Point, um, that will be very, very important for their future success, not just as army officers, but beyond you know, everybody has another career after the army. Um, And so whether they serve active duty for five years or for 40 years and retire as a general, they're going to be doing something afterwards. And their success both in the army and out of the army, I think, is largely driven by this following set of skills. Number one, the ability to gather large amounts of information in a systematic way to analyze that information using some sort of robust structured methodology to derive appropriate conclusions from that analysis and then to communicate those conclusions effectively in both written and oral form. Um, And so whether, you know, they're doing a research paper for me as a cadet or you know, preparing uh, an intelligence analysis and brief for their chain of command, or you know, after the army, working in you know finance and doing some of the same types of activities. Being able to sort of master those skills is, I think, really, really essential and important. And so, uh, you know, my tip is uh, to all sort of future leaders is to work on that stuff and. Uh, and to really develop those skills, especially the communication skills, are are very important um, because that's ultimately what I think sort of get noticed and get your ideas out there uh, in front of the decision makers that that are really sort of running the show. Yeah, hundred percent. The individuals, the vehicle of the information. I really like those points, um, particularly analyzing the information. We uh, have so much access to information everywhere now. Um, that the analysis piece is key. Uh, So you're not uh, taking on information as truth under a false premise. Well, thank you very much for joining us on the show, Uh, Rob. It's been absolutely fantastic to have someone with your expertise in the area to help get us up to speed and understand it. Um, Thank you very much again for joining us and we hope to have you again on the show in the future. Thank you so much. I had a wonderful time. Look forward to seeing you again. Thank you for listening to Jean Nicole Pod. Stay in contact with us through jeunicole underscore pod on Twitter or www.jeunicole.com.